0: Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Gospel of Matthew series. In 1997, a number of things happened. Princess Diana died in a tragic accident. Steve Jobs came back to Apple. Titanic short word about Leonardo. A little-known author named J.K. Rowling released a little book about witches into the world that Christians freaked out over for a solid decade. <laughs> but another event that's much quieter, but I would argue just as important, it's actually a book. Edward Freeman, you may or may not know that name, a year after his death, his family put out his last book called A Failure of Nerve. Many, myself included, consider it the greatest leadership book or the most important leadership book we've ever read. And Friedman, if you're not familiar with him, was a Jewish rabbi and therapist who was an early expert on the idea of systems theory, the idea that families function like a system of relationships. Very well-known, famous book, Generation to Generation is the basis for much of the work we do here around family of origin, genogram, generational sin, all of that work. Later in life, he applied the data from family systems theory to larger systems, such as, first off, the synagogue and the church later to businesses, and eventually to nation states. He became a well-sought-after expert and advisor to the White House and other heads of state. And um, in failure of nerve, he applied all of that wisdom, multi-decades of learning, to leadership, It's a bit dense, you don't necessarily need to read it, but the basic premise, his basic premise, is that the West, as sociologists have long documented, is built around this idea of the myth of progress, which is a faith, and it really is a quasi-religious kind of faith, that human history is moving toward a utopian or at least a better future. Think of Steven Pinker, some kind of modern evangelist for this view. Most ancient and still many Eastern societies think of history as far more cyclical, much more like the seasons. But Friedman said that when you actually look at the data, just the hard data, the West is progressing economically and technologically. So more people have more money or at least a far better standard of living than ever before. Science, technology, medical breakthrough, all of that is at an all-time high, and it's wonderful and we're grateful But he would argue, based on the data, that the West is regressing both emotionally and socially. A recent Pew survey over last year found that 39% of Americans say they are more anxious than they were a year ago. 39%. That's not like an aberration, that's an epidemic. The stats on mental health in general are through the roof. Of course, SSRIs are like a multi-billion dollar industry now, chronic depression, bipolar through the roof as well, all sorts of personality disorders on the rise, not to mention the relational milieu, those who identify as secure attachment down 25%, widespread divorce, which we assume is the cause of that. Things like marriage, and family, and sexuality, and even gender are now all up in the air. And it does feel a little bit like life is falling apart. And Friedman identified a five-step self-perpetuating cycle of anxiety by which the West is regressing in a kind of downward spiral. First was reactivity. This vicious cycle is kicked off by a culture of reactivity where people are constantly react to the external events and stimuli of life with internal anxiety, fear, anger, outrage, jealousy, whatever it is. Now, of course, the 24-7 digital news cycle thrives off of this as reactivity because it generates hits, which in turn drives up advertising revenue. So they make money, as we all know, off of our anxiety and our addiction to our phones. Think of how much news now, even from prestigious journalistic outlets like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, write entire stories based on a tweet or series of tweets from a politician or celebrity that morning, just feeding the outrage monster. This in turn creates a herding instinct for all the talk about how individualistic we are, especially in Portland where we're extra individualistic. We can't change the nature of what it means to be human. Secular psychologists call us social animals, and while I disagree with that categorization of a human being as an animal, still, at a neurobiological level, the herd mentality is wired into our brain. So as the culture is sucked into reactivity, in spite of all the talk about individualism, most of us follow the crowd and devolve into a kind of mob mentality about whatever the issue is. Third, this then creates a culture of blame displacement. Quote, instead of examining and searching out the underlying causes creating toxicity, we focus on the symptoms, viewing them in isolation instead of seeing them as part of a system whole. Rather than taking a proactive approach that examines our ability to affect change, In areas over which we have a responsibility, we retreat into a perpetual victim status, blaming others and external forces. As blame is thrown around, a cultural paralysis sets in. A suffocating fear of offending creates gridlock, which prevents renewal. This, in turn, creates a quick fix mentality. The hedonism and instant gratification of Western culture in general and Portland food cart culture in particular, God bless it, creates in all of us um, more than just love handles. It creates in us a low threshold for pain, which cr- keeps us from what the writers of the Bible call perseverance, and makes us as a culture look for the silver bullet or the killer app. Quick, simple, easy solutions, most of them external or political, to long-term, complex, hard problems. Many of them are external, and, but are first internal and spiritual. Finally, this creates a lack of well-differentiated leadership. Again, this is kind of techno-language. What he means is this all works together to create an environment that works against leaders or against at least the types of leaders that have the capacity to break this cycle of anxiety. You simply can't lead well. Many of you in some form of leadership at your work or what family know this to be true. You can't lead well in an environment of reactivity, anger, blame shifting, low emotional resilience, a desire for instant gratification, et cetera. So as the saying goes, we get the leaders we deserve. Often those who prey on the cycle of anxiety to get what they want rather than stand up and take the hit to stop it. Now, Friedman said the only way to stop this self-perpetuating cycle is to inject, whether this is in your family or in the United States of America is to inject right into the middle of it what he called a non-anxious presence, and that was his original moniker. What he meant by a non-anxious presence was a well-differentiated leader. That's psychological language you don't need to remember. All it means is a leader who doesn't get caught up in the emotion of the other person. It was a clear, healthy sense of boundary between that's you and it's not me. That's your anger, your outrage, your emotion, your fear, your anxiety. It doesn't have to become mine. And so as they step into a relationship, whether it's a squabble over, you know, Thanksgiving table, as long as we're talking about fall, with an uncle or whatever, or a nation state, you know, war, trade war with China or whatever it is, a well-differentiated leader steps into that environment of anxiety and is calm, not perfect, but is calm, at peace, wise, compassionate, loving, empathetic, but yet firm, and is able to stop the cycle, Mark Sayers, my buddy, and I joke about this wall of recommended reading at Powell's I just saw it a few days ago. We just call it the freaking out wall. Have you seen that? It's like, yeah, you know, they're like the end and they have all the recommended reads. And it's just freaking out. It's climate change. It's China. It's the economy. It's the gap between wealth and poor. It's systemic injustice. And there are many things that are, are very worrisome. They're not illegitimate things to freak out about. But there's just this culture right now where it's become normative. What our city desperately needs And what it's very likely our church itself needs, and your family needs, or your workplace needs, is followers of Jesus and others to step into that cycle as a non-anxious presence, strong, at peace, compassionate, wise, and firm to break the cycle of anxiety that is driving us into this devolution. Now, the trick is easier said than done, am I right? How many of you are like, great, I'll just be a non-anxious presence this week? No problem. The question, of course, is if you're least smart, you know, like, okay, I'm not that, though. How do I become a non-anxious presence? Often, I'm just as anxious as the next person. And that's where Friedman's work is fine, but I think it's less helpful. But in the story that we're about to read from Matthew, which is all about fear, ironically, um, Jesus, not ironically, I mean the Spirit of God is here, that's what I mean, Jesus and his biographer, Matthew, offer us a way forward to becoming, in Friedman's language, a non-anxious presence, or in the language of the New Testament, a man or a woman who is free from the tyranny of anxiety or fear. We left off with Bethany last week in verse 21. Let's pick it up in verse 22. Immediately, meaning right after that story, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat, This word made is the Greek word ananakazo, and it means to force or compel somebody to do something, often against their own will. That's interesting. He made them get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, that's of the Sea of Galilee, while he dismissed the crowd. Now, after Jesus had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, This is Jesus, who earlier in Matthew's Gospel, if you remember from the Sermon on the Mount, said, when you pray, not if, when, he just assumes, if you're a disciple of Jesus, this is a part of the warp and woof of your life, regular prayer. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, get alone, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret, or that can be translated in the secret place, will reward you. And here is Jesus living it, life out of the secret place, a life of regular, restful prayer in the Father's loving presence, which I would argue is a key to Jesus as a non-anxious presence. Now, later that night, he was there alone up in the mountain, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now the Sea of Galilee, as most of you know, is actually a lake, but it's very large. Think of you know Lake Tahoe or something. It's 13 miles long, eight miles wide. And with the Galilean weather patterns and the way cool air comes off the Mediterranean through this valley right over the Sea of Galilee, there are dangerous storms to this day that come up out of the blue. The disciples are caught in one out in the open, and as far as we can tell, their life is not in duress, but what should have been a quick, like, hour-long, like, row over to Peter's mom's house for a late supper is instead now they're in this storm and they're blown way off course to the point that 25, shortly before dawn, now that's in the NIV. If you have an ESV or a more literal translation, it's in the fourth watch of the night, the Romans divided the night into four three-hour watches between six p.m. and six a.m. Meaning one, this would have been between three a.m. and dawn, not when most of us are our emotional best, you know, point for the day, and um, two, meaning they had been at it for at least nine hours. And remember, they were already exhausted. If you can think back to the last two teachings, they get word of John the Baptizer's death, right, by beheading, and they go away to this desert place to grieve, process, rest, heal, and recover from this tragic news, and instead are followed by thousands of people and end up becoming like servers at a restaurant for 20 plus thousand people for a marathon day. And now they're like, finally, we have to go. Like, Peter's enchiladas are the best. We have to go to his mom's house or whatever, enchiladas, whatever, hummus, pita, whatever it is, are the best. We have to go there now. So they're just exhausted. I mean, and now they're rowing against the wind all night long. It's three, four, five in the morning. It sounds just, has anybody had like a kayaking gone bad story or whatever, you know, or like stand up paddle or as Gerald would say, sup, gone bad or whatever. (laughs) Like it's that on steroids, right? So much worse. But at dawn, right before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And notice, on the lake, not by the lake, on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. So it's not like, oh, great news, here's Jesus. It's what the heck is that on the water? Now, just a little bit of backstory. One, um, this is a bit weird for us, but we think of the sea or the lake as a place you go to relax, Oswald West. We were just there as a family this last week. You go for a day off. You go, by the way, go to Sea Level Bakery on the way down. Say hi to them. They used to go to our church. They abandoned us, but they make the best sourdough bread in the Pacific Northwest. Get the country loaf. They serve heart coffee and then enjoy short sands. That's for free, okay? That's just extra for you for free. But we think of the beach or the lake as exactly that, a day you go for a day off, or camping, or vacation, or where you relax. But to the ancient Hebrews, who were not a seafaring people, but were much more of a Bedouin culture. And imagine, they don't live in the city like we do. The world is quiet, and you show up at the ocean. Noise, loud, chaos, wind, waves. The sea was both at a metaphorical level and a theological level, and many would argue at a historical level, was the place of chaos and anarchy and evil spirits like Leviathan that we read about in the Old Testament. Add to that that the word used here for ghost in Greek is phantasma, where we get the word for phantom, and we assume, scholars assume, it's based on a first century superstition that the souls of those who drowned haunted the waters at night, in particular if they were evil. So as you would imagine, they are scared to death. It's three in the morning, they've been up. They're half delirious. They've been up for days. They're on like the place of Leviathan and chaos and evil. And there's a you know haunted ghost who's there to kill them or whatever. It's absolutely terrifying. But Jesus immediately said to them, "I love it. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid." Now, this line is the fulcrum point in the story. Matthew, as you hopefully know by now, is a literary genius. It's almost like he had help in writing his biography. And this phrase, it is I, is ego, a me, in Greek, and it's exactly in the middle of the story, depending on which manuscript, ancient manuscript you read, they're either exactly or really close to 90 words before it and 90 words after. It's Matthew's way of like drawing a giant red circle around this one phrase, it is I. Now, in English, it reads, it is I, or if you have a more relaxed translation, it's, it's me. But the word me isn't actually there in Greek. That's added because it's an odd Greek phrase. In Greek, it's just I am, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew phrase used all through the Old Testament for what scholars call the divine name of God, beginning in Exodus with the burning bush famous story where Moses asked, what do I, when I go to Egypt, what do I, what do I call you? Who do I say sent me? And God answers, call me I am, or in Greek, the translation of that is ego emi." And this divine name runs all the way through the Old Testament. Here's one example, a poem from Isaiah that there's no doubt Matthew has in mind. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, who formed you, Israel, do not fear. Same command. For I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am, or in Greek, ego emi, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So when this ghost walking on the water says, ego emi, or I am, what Peter and company would have keyed right into is, that means, it's me, it's God, You don't need to fear, not the ghost or the storm. Hence, 28, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, the word Lord is Kyrios in Greek, which is a Greek word that just means master, but it's a bit confusing because it's also the first century translation of the divine name from the Hebrew. They were scared to actually call God by his name. So in the Bible that most first century Jews, including Matthew, used, called the Septuagint, you don't need to remember any of this, but it was the Greek translation of the Bible used by Matthew and Jesus and others... The word that was that ego that I am was translated into was this word, Kyria. So when you're reading the New Testament and you read this word, Lord, sometimes it just means master, but sometimes it means God, the creator, right? Or Yahweh. And again, you could interpret it either way here based on context, but it's likely that Peter means Lord, God, if that's you out there on the water that I'm scared of, then tell me to come to you. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Now, you know, we don't know. Matthew doesn't give us Peter's motivation here. So as a result, scholars have long speculated. Some read it as a bright, shining example of faith. Like, what an incredible act. And it just went south in a minute, not to give it away. Um, others read it as a foolish dramatic, impulsive mood, which Peter is famous for, a little bit less of a step of faith and more of like an immature chasing after the charismatic spiritual experience, um, I think I'm a little inclined to believe the former, not the latter. But either way, nobody thinks this is a model to follow. So just to clarify, if you're at Oswald West on Saturday and it goes south, call the Coast Guard, all right? don't Or Gerald, whatever. Um, just don't, don't attempt to walk on water, unless if there is a ghost there and it uses Greek and it's God's name and that stuff, in which case, great. But we don't know Peter's motivation. What we do know is that, man, this is, this is so human. What happens next? Thirty. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. What an eloquent prayer. Just so poetic, right? Just, no, so short and blunt and to the point and wonderful. Peter, of course, who would have had in his mind and in his memory all the prayers of the Psalms to Yahweh God to rescue from the many deep waters, Of course, those prayers are all to Yahweh, and Peter's prayer is to Jesus, which shows you, the reader, that's a hint that Peter's view of Jesus has become far more than that of just a rabbi. Immediately, 31, Jesus reached out his hand, and he caught him, you of little faith. Now, in Greek, a little faith is actually one word, and um, it's, it's more literally, you little faith. And we think it's less of an insult, because like, I would argue, like, that's more faith than I've ever had in my whole life. So if that's little faith, we're all screwed, right? <laughs> um, I actually think it's, like, playful Jesus, almost like a parental chiding, like, oh, you little faith. Why did you doubt? You were so close. You were, you were there. You were so close. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. That word truth is a in Greek. It's, just, it's literally the noun for truth. You could translate it truth. You are the son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, which is kind of a few miles away in the northeast corner, I'm sorry, northwest corner of the lake. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country, oh my gosh, Jesus, the famous rabbi is here. People brought all who were ill to him. Notice that the gut reaction is, let's go to this man for healing, for saving of our body itself. And they begged him to let those who were ill just touch the edge of his cloak. So much power was on Jesus by the spirit of God. All that was necessary was one touch and all who touched it were healed, or in the NIV, it's just healed. If you have an ESV or other translation, it's thoroughly healed or completely healed. There's a a modifier at the front of the regular Greek word for healed. It can be translated, all who touched it were all the way healed. That's the level of power embodied in Jesus of Nazareth. Now, let's just take a little step back. This has gotta be one of the most well-known stories of Jesus in the four gospels, which in turn has made it one of the most common metaphors for life in Western culture as a whole, in particular for the hard times of life, which we liken to storms. There's something about the story that we keep coming back to because it resonates with us at an emotional level. Something about it speaks to the felt experience of the human condition. There are times when we, like Peter and the disciples, um, at least if your experience is anything like mine, feel made or forced often against our will to do something, and then it's hard. There are times, um, at least if your journey is anything like mine, where we feel like Jesus has asked us to do the impossible, or like, Jesus, this is just so, hor- so hard, or it's, it's not even a, a possibility, there are times when we feel like the winds of life are against us. I don't know how to better say that. Rather than that, our back, like there are seasons when we feel like it's at our back and we just like everything is for us and it's like everything we touch turns to gold. And then there are times when we feel like this, man, like every, there's just slugging it out and we're getting next to nowhere or, or times when we feel just blown off course. We're like, Jesus, this was not the plan. Where the heck are we? times when we're exhausted and overtired, and then to add insult to injury, things get even worse. We're like, Jesus, can't you like space out suffering a little bit, like just a little microdose here, there, like one minor event a month, not like everything at once, as if Jesus is in charge of our suffering or something like that, which is a modern heresy, more on that in a moment. There are times when we feel distant from Jesus, like we know he's watching us, in theory, from the top of the mountain, but we just feel all alone in the pain and hardship of life, and it's dark, and it's scary, and it's weird, and it's confusing, and we don't get it. There are lots of times, if your story is anything like mine, where we feel out of control, when life feels chaotic and dangerous and ominous. And there are times, if you're anything like me, when you feel just full of faith, like you could just do anything, and then there are other times when you're just racked by doubt. There are times when we relate to this metaphor of a storm. You may relate to it this weekend. Even though it's a beautiful weekend, you may feel that if not at a weather pattern level, at an emotional level or a relational level or a circumstantial or even a spiritual level, like you're in a storm, or like Jesus is distant, or like your life is out of control, or this is not the way it was supposed to go, or I'm just so tired, and then it's one more thing. Or you may not feel that way at all. In which case, fantastic, you will. (laughs) Just here to bless you. You will in time. It's just life. This is just the honest reality of life. Unfortunately, because so many of us are over-familiar with the story, and in particular with that kind of skeptical, secular-like voice in our mind, it's hard to like, take it all that seriously, and therefore, it's a bit of a challenge to let this story all the way into our heart, but let's just make, if you would just lean in with me, just for a few moments, and just really attempt to let this into you. I think there's a lot of freedom on offer here. Now, Matthew is a literary master, as we said, and um, like all great literature, this is not like just a simple moral lesson. This is a story about dot, 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 dot. It's not how good literature works. I was um, writing a few weeks ago, and I was using this quote from Zadie Smith's book, White Teeth, which I read um, last summer. It was wonderful, and then I thought to myself, why is the novel called White Teeth? That's like such a weird, it's beautiful, but it's a weird title. So Google, thank you God for the internet, makes us all way smarter than we really are. Google white teeth, and of course, there's like all these lit professors that have blogged about it or whatever, and they all point out how she uses teeth as this metaphor all the way through the book. I'm like, oh, I missed that when I was reading it. Oh, that's that? That's that? But what was classic is every single lit professor had a totally different explanation. It's about colonialism. It's about women. It's about Jamaica. It's about identity. It's about secularism. It's about religion. It's about, there were like five, six different interpretations of what the metaphor white teeth means. And those of you that have sat around lit class, you know like there's not a right answer. It's about all of it, right? It's, it's not about one thing. It's, a, it's this multipolar reality. Stories are not rarely, when they're really good, about just one thing. In the same way with this story, there are layers to it. This storm, which is, 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 was historical, I take it as, but was metaphorical as well, and I think Matthew wants us to read it that way, is about more than just one thing. At one level, it's a story about the true nature of Jesus. This is the most kind of like... Blatant meaning of the story. If you're reading through Matthew, not in little bits and pieces over three years at Bridgetown, but in one sitting, first century Jew, hearing it read out loud, all in one sitting you know that he's ratcheting up the disciples' grasp on who exactly Jesus is. At the beginning, in particular in chapters five through seven of the Sermon on the Mount, you get that Jesus is clearly a sage, um, uh, the most brilliant teacher and luminary of the human condition to ever live. But then in the next few chapters, which are all about him healing the sick and casting out demons and works of power, you begin to realize, okay, he's not just a really smart guy. He's a prophet with the power from God to heal the sick. But then by about chapter 14, with last week's story and then this one, you begin to realize, okay, wait, he's more than just a prophet, even in the vein of Elijah or Elisha or even in the vein of Moses. He's something else entirely. He is the son of God. Now, this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that the disciples called Jesus the son of God. Prior to this, the father has called Jesus the son of God at his baptism. The devil and the demons have called Jesus the son of God, to which Jesus had said in classic Jesus fashion, shh, don't tell me, buddy. And you, the, so you, the reader, for a while, you read the Christmas story, you read the Mary story, you know that Jesus is more than just a teacher or a prophet, but the disciples don't get that yet. And so this is them just now catching up to what you and I, the reader, know, that Jesus, in a strange, mysterious way that's really hard to get our head around, shares not only our humanity, but also God's divinity. And this is a a categorical leap forward for a first century Jew like Peter and his ilk. How did they get there? Well, the first hint was in that language of ego and me, or I am, again, that was God's name for himself, But the other main clue in the story is that Jesus does what God and only God can do, walk on water and make storms end on command. There's a long list of well-known scriptures in the Old Testament that speak to this. Of course, the most classic is the story of the Red Sea in Exodus 14, or this line from Job, "'He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea.'" Or this from Psalm 107, one of many psalms that say something like this. Some went out on the sea in ships. There were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. He spoke and stirred up a tempest that lift up the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Does that sound familiar to you? Or this from Isaiah, this is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters. Now, Matthew doesn't cite all of these scriptures. And by the way, there are many more. He doesn't need to, his Jewish audience, oral culture, most of the Bible put to memory, is steeped in the language of the Old Testament. So in classic Jewish style, he doesn't write a theological essay, point one, Jesus is God. He just writes about how Jesus does things that God and only God can do. This is why the disciples, all of whom were first century Jewish strict monotheists, strict taboos against the worship of other gods, much less a human being they were friends with, call Jesus the son of God and worship him. Scholars, of course, point out, even the skeptical ones, that this is one of the signs that the Jesus stories were not made up. After the fact, they are just too unlikely unless if they have a ring of truth about them. So this story is Matthew's way of saying, okay, Jesus is far more than just a brilliant wisdom sage or a prophet, he's more, he's the I am. And listen, this is where it comes to back to our heart. This is why we don't have to be afraid. When Gerald says to me, hey John Mark, don't fear. It's super nice of him, but it's Gerald. Like it doesn't, like he doesn't, he surfs really well But without the surfboard, zero power over the water, like zero, right? But if the creator God says to you, do not fear. That's a whole other horizon of possibility. Now, secondly, the next layer of the story is about the true nature of the world that we inhabit. This is a miracle story. And again, it's hard not to read this with a little bit of a cynic, like, come on, we know that miracles aren't real, they were a pre-modern myth, as if people in the first century like, thought people could walk on water and were unaware of that or something. Pretty sure they were aware of that as we are. But it's easy to just think, man, come on, miracles are wishful thinking, it's just, we have all sorts of other language for it. It's spontaneous remission, or it's serendipity, or luck, or some aspect of quantum physics that we've yet to discover, anything but a miracle, the intellectual Wendell Berry, in his essay, Life is a Miracle An Essay Against Modern Superstition, which is such a great title. By modern superstition, he means the modern bias against the miraculous. The idea or really the assumption that the world is a Darwinian material reality, nothing more than blind chance and genetic like kind of programmed genes in your brain. There is no God. Therefore, there are no miracles. Wendell Berry calls this a modern superstition and bias. He writes about, quote, the hubris of presumption, treating life, this is the Western thing, as knowable, predictable, and within our control. He writes this, the most radical influence of reductive science, he's not anti-science, he's anti-reductive science, or what we would call scientism, which is more of a religion, has been virtually the universal adoption of the idea that the world, its creatures, and all parts of the creatures are machines. This may have begun as a metaphor, but in the language as it is used, it this is key, it institutionalizes the human wish or the sin of wishing that life might be or might be made to be predictable. Now, his key insight here is that behind the Western ethos, behind much of the science and technology for which we're grateful, is this deep human urge to control the world and to keep us from all harm. In everything from ancient religions with animal sacrifice to superstition, which is still around and in evidence every time you see somebody throw salt over their shoulder at a nice restaurant or skip the 13th floor, to the science and technology of the secular world that we call home, all of these are attempts to master something that in the end cannot be mastered, or at least not all the way mastered, And Barry's key line at the end of the essay is, to treat life as less than a miracle is to give up on it. But the insight that I find incredibly helpful is the level at which humans, religious or secular, ancient or modern, Western or Eastern, crave control as a way to manage fear. We wanna control our fate, control our life, control our story to make sure nothing bad happens as a a coping mechanism to deal with our anxiety. I was chatting to a dear friend of mine that I've known for many years, um, one of the most Christ-like women I know who's had a kind of multi-year, on-again, off-again struggle with um, anorexia. And she was just reminding me, and I guess I knew this, but she was just reminding me that all of that, for many of you in the room and know what that's like from experience, is rooted in the need to control. If I can control this little part of my life, then I can have peace. She also reminded me that you don't find hardly any eating disorders outside of Western secular culture and almost solely white culture. It's fascinating. You did, like you literally don't find it at a medical level. There is something about this Western secular world that has our anxiety go way up because we don't live in a world with God and miracles. We live in a world of blind chance and we think that we can control this world. We can can become masters of the universe. The enlightenment shift from creation to nature, Patrick Deneen and other political philosophers have talked about how what's behind that language shift from creation to nature is the belief that humans are not image bearers under a generous host, creator God, who live in his world, who have limitations and potential, and have the capacity for trust in God's generosity. No, we're just the dominant species at the top of the food chain, and we have to take care of ourselves and our planet, otherwise, it's all good. There's there's no one coming to save us. There's no miracles, there's nobody walking on water, this is all superstitious nonsense. And what that does is create havoc at an emotional level in anxiety. And, and it creates positive things as well, such as the airplane and medical breakthroughs, like all an attempt to master fate, and for which we are all grateful. But the problem is at the end of the day, we're not actually in control. Even if we're far more in control than people were 500 years ago, we're still not actually in control at the level where things most matter. We live in a world, no matter how much wealth or privilege or science or technology, or if we can upload our consciousness to the cloud in a few years and live forever, which is not gonna happen, by the way. But like, seriously, like there are legit people that actually think that. That's becoming the new Silicon Valley religion. It's all an attempt at control. We'll control death itself. But we can't. We can't control the weather, much less upload our consciousness to the cloud. We can't control what other people do, the suffering, the pain of life. And this opens life up to grief, but it also opens life up to joy. Because this means we live in a, life, in a world that we can't control, that's out of our control, but that is a world of miracles. And again, Matthew's point is this is why we don't need to be afraid. You live in a world of miracles. You live in a world where Jewish rabbis walk on water, and you can too, where there are possibilities that are beyond the imagination. Hence, the third layer to the story as we really begin to get home, is about the true nature of faith and fear. For disciples of Jesus, this is a story about faith and its alternative doubt, and about how doubt in God and his goodness and the human desire for control team up to unleash fear in our soul and our society, Faith and fear have a reciprocal relationship. The more faith we have, the less fear, and vice versa. If we live in a world where there is God and there are no, sorry, there is no God and there are no miracles, just genetic programming and survival of the fittest, and we're on our own and no one is coming to save us, then make sure you show up for your burn cycle class and power up and speak your truth and be the strongest you can and go out and advocate for yourself because you're in charge of your destiny and you better take care of yourself. And that works fine until it doesn't work anymore. But if we live in a world where there is a God, and it's a world full of miraculous, full of grief and tragedy and joy and gratitude, a world under the care of a generous creator and sustainer, our host in his world, where even death is not the end, then we simply do not need, as Jesus said, to be afraid. Peter is a great example, of course. He doesn't begin to sink and then get scared. He gets scared and then begins to sink. Such is the way. And he's a great case study because you know, in one story, just in a few minutes, faith, doubt, and fear all show up within minutes of each other. Does that ring true to your experience at all? You know, faith, or scholars argue a better English translation is either the word trust or the word loyalty. However you translate it, this concept of faith is a sibling to emotion. And so it's, much of it is a feeling. And, and so just like emotions, they come and they go and they rise and they fall. And there are times when you feel full of faith in God and full of confidence in God and other times when you just are absolutely scared to death. Maturity, so most of us, our emotional level of trust in God rises and falls with the circumstances of our life, the size of the wind or the waves, so to speak, in the well-known example. Maturity in Jesus is about rising above the circumstances to a more steady plane. Of course, most of us aren't that mature yet. We're more like Peter. There are times when our faith is robust, and then we crash up against the facts of life. But what's easy to miss in this story, and this for me is what I've been really thinking about, is first off the fact that it's part of a much larger story about Jesus growing his apprentices into a non-anxious presence of love in the world Keep in mind, this is the second, if you remember, this is the second storm story in Matthew's Gospel. You're like, this sounds a little bit familiar. It is. There was another storm storm story back in chapter 8, and the two simil- stories are very similar. Same sea, storm, same Galilee, but they're also very different. Similar in that they're both about storms on the sea, but different in that in the first storm, Jesus is in the boat, but he's asleep. In the second, he's out of the boat, nowhere to be seen. In the first, Jesus calls them little faith, same thing, But he simply then asks them a question. Why is it you are so afraid? Whereas in the second one that we just read, he gives them a command, do not fear. Now there's a thing here. Jesus is well aware that he can't just tell his disciples not to fear right out of the gate. We have to become the kind of people who have the capacity to not fear. And that's what he's been doing with Peter and his apprentices over the last few years. And this is the key insight. Notice, Peter doesn't ask Jesus for a promise. Hey, call me to come to you. Promise me that nothing bad will happen to me. And then I'll come. Promise me that I will walk. I'll make it all the way to you. And I won't sink. And my life is not under duress. And then Jesus, I will totally step out in faith. Give me your word. He doesn't say that. He just says, call me to come and I'll come. All I need is a call. All I need is a command. All I need is direction for you. And if it means I perish... I perish. Okay. Such is life. That takes a very high level of maturity. So before we mock this man, like when was the last time you got half as far as him? Wherever you're at with Jesus on the maturity spectrum, I would argue this is something Jesus is always working at in your life and minds. We have to always ask the question, how do I cooperate with this? He's always working to grow and mature us into the kind of people who have, been, who, be, who have become a non-anxious presence as a result of a deep trust in God on one hand and a release of this deep human urge or even need to control the chaos and mystery and pain of our life and to manage and manipulate the circumstances and people of our life to get what we want. So to circle back to our question, How do we become a non-anxious presence? As we think about the year to come, as we just think about fall and life in the workplace and city and school and the stress of life and the freaking out wall at Powell's books, how do we live as a stopgap in this vicious cycle of anxiety? From Jesus and Matthew's point of view, it's very simple, but it will take us a lifetime to get it into our muscle memory. One, we have faith in Jesus. And please note, not faith in the modern Western heresy that if you follow Jesus, nothing bad will happen to you, or that if it does, it's all part of some master plan of Jesus. Just faith in Jesus. Just faith that he's good and he's with you. Whatever comes, what you want or what you don't want, God's will or the Satan's will, or chaos and anarchy's will, or unemployment, whether it's Jesus' will for your life or just pain and suffering in a world that is terrifyingly free. Our faith, our trust, our loyalty, our emotional repose is just Jesus is good and he's with me. And two, we release our need for control. There's a long-standing teaching on this in the way of Jesus. One of my favorite teachers on the subject is Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order. His word for it was indifference is how it's normally translated. He used a Spanish word that is a much more positive word. I don't think indifference is a great English translation because it makes me kind of think like, eh, who cares what happens? What he was saying was we have to come to this place where our love and our joy and our peace don't rise and fall based on what does or does not happen to us the very beginning of his spiritual exercises for which he's famous, he wrote this, and I just have been thinking about this a lot the last few weeks. We should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one. For everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God our only desire, and our one choice should be this. I want and choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. Notice as we end how he ties this idea of indifference or whatever you wanna call it, detachment, or the release of your need for control, not only to fear, but he ties it also to love. Now Matthew in this story doesn't make that connection obvious or blatant, but if you read the story inside inside his larger story about Jesus and his teaching and work, you know that everything at some level for Jesus is about how we become a person of love. It's not just like he wants you to not feel stressed out. He wants me to become a person of love, and what we often forget is that fear and love are at war with each other. Perfect love casts out what? Fear, and the way that works is when we scramble for control— Over our life, not all of which is bad, but we negate love because we inevitably manipulate, use, run over, ignore, or hurt other people in our attempt to get the life we want and we think we need to be happy rather than receive the joy and gift and sorrow of life as it actually is. A mentor I was talking to about this a few days ago said to me when fear is running the show, love is repressed said, just a minute, let me write that down in my Evernote file, because that's going in Sunday's teaching. When fear is running the show, love is repressed. In context, we were talking about one of my wonderful kids. We went back to school a couple days ago. And um, won't name names, but one of my children is just quite bright, but it's just not the academic that I planned for him to be. And, um, and so it's just a rough kind of re entry. And just one night at the dinner table, I just got really mad at this kid lost my temper and was just embarrassing as a father, was not my best, just critical and mad. And my mentor was helping me realize that you felt anger and you acted in a way that was unloving, but actually what's below that is fear. Like you have a plan for his life, like I'm like, He's gonna go to better college than I ever went to, and I've been saving an Oregon College savings plan since he was an infant, which, by the way, is awesome. 50% return, young parents, you should know. But I've been saving, I've been sacrificing. All my friends were having car payments, and I'm like eating beans and rice for lunch and not a car payment, and I'm sacrificing for this, and he's gonna go, and he's gonna to go to this school, and it's gonna be amazing, and then his life's gonna be safe and good, and so is mine. And then everybody's gonna think, your son went where? You're such an amazing father. Raising culturally, you started so middle class, suburban, normal parents, and look at your child is world famous. And <laughs> clearly, it's your parenting, you know? That's not in my heart at all. That's just in other parents' hearts. Um, and he helped me realize like, like, the anger is actually fear. I'm losing control. This isn't the plan that I came up with for your life. My plan was you're a 4.0 student, you get the scholarship to Catelyn Gable, and then the scholarship to Santa. Like, we're just crushing it, right? And you're a rock star on the side. That's the plan. Um, And so when life spins out of my control, as it always does, I I feel fear first, and then that turns into anger, criticism, blame shifting, an attempt to manipulate people rather than receive the gift of a soul as it actually comes to me. So becoming a non-anxious presence isn't just about feeling less anxiety and causing the cycle of anxiety in our city to just chill out a little. At the end of the day, it's about becoming people of love. And the only way we can become people that actually live free from fear and full of love and joy and peace is if we become the kind of people who are marked by a deep trust that Jesus is far more than just a really smart teacher. He is the I am. He has the power and authority over creation itself because he is creator and he's good. And whatever comes, his will or not, he's with us. All of it. And if we release our need from control, still do what we can to make our life work well. But when our life goes out of our control, we we accept that, we breathe, we chuckle, we sigh, we grieve, And we say yes, because everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way, a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All our resources are completely free. Thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for this episode goes to Natalie from Hayes, Kansas, Matthew from West Primble, New South Wales, Grace from Portland, Oregon, Amanda from Lawrenceville, Georgia, and Scott from Midwest City, Oklahoma. Thank you all so much. To join the circle or learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org.